0: Welcome to the Done Right Podcast. I'm Jordan Staples, and over the past decade and a half, I've been studying how people live successful and satisfying lives, both in and outside of work. And here's what I've learned. People in the workforce who are successful and satisfied are the ones that show up, pitch in, and make an impact in their companies. They are the ones who know how to get stuff done, but do it right. I'm here in Lehigh, Utah, at Workfront headquarters, and am so grateful you're here to join me for today's episode: Collective Excellence. How good leaders cultivate, inspire, build, how they develop great teams. I had. I want to. I want to start off by telling you uh, an awesome experience I had just uh, a few months ago. Beginning of this year. Here in Utah, we have uh, Silicon Slopes Tech Summit. There's a great turnout—twenty thousand plus people this year—and our company Workfront was a sponsor, and so we had a spot on one of the breakout sessions on one, on a stage in the breakout session. Two, three thousand people. Alex Schutman, CEO of the company, slated to speak. Right. So there, there were some scheduling issues and some confusion and essentially Alex was planning to be with a customer and they gave him uh, a date and time and, and it conflicted. And, and so they had to find someone else to, to as backup and backup fell through. And so it's two weeks before this thing's about to happen. And they're like, Jordan, uh, can, will you, will you do this? You know, uh, and Gary Klinger gave me a shirt uh, because I did it. Thank you, Gary. I I had a great time doing it, and really, we had we were in the entrepreneur track, which basically means you can speak about anything. And we 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 all knew we wanted to speak about this new book that uh, Alex wrote called "Done Right," and so I have this rule that before I get up and do public speaking, I have to like whatever I get up and talk about, it has to be real for me, right it, it, this it has to come from a, from an authentic place. And I try and do that for all these episodes, but especially when I'm standing in front of two, three thousand people, you feel that pressure and I feel the pressure obviously to perform well. I think we all do. But I was uh you know, I really wanted it to be real for me because I knew I could speak from just truth, speak from the heart, you know, kind of thing and 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 uh, and be able to deliver in a way that that uh, would be satisfying to me and and I think be the most valuable to the audience. So two weeks like i i'm I'm going through and I'm trying to figure out uh what what to talk about and we're gonna actually have in a different episode, we're gonna dive into this topic uh, more in intensely, but I wanted to talk about the kind of the essence of of this whole done right uh, message. and and as much as the first few episodes uh, we've done for the podcast have been, about the individual and you showing up and courage and bringing your 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 best to the to the table achievement really happens in a in, as a team. I learned this from Raul Varma who's the the chief learning officer uh at Accenture. They have 435,000 employees. Like I can't even process that number. That is that is that is a population of some major city in the U.S., it feels like. But he was recounting in, in what I was uh, reading of his that they did this research study to understand how performance management was really going, like how effective it was. And essentially what what he – one of the points that he made from the research uh, conclusions was that performance happens as a team. It happens as, as a collective, So this idea of collective excellence is what I want to really uh, infuse into our conversation and the role that leaders can play in fostering that collective excellence. That's what I was trying to get across uh, at Silicon Slopes. And so I'm going through and I'm trying to find like great examples of these wonderful teams. And the thing that keeps coming up is World War II Band of Brothers, Lieutenant Dick Winter, Easy Company, like that. That story kept coming up, and so I just got, like, I I just got totally consumed by watching every interview, every speech, uh, and all these articles about these men who went and did some unbelievable things for our freedom. And. As I'm as I'm listening to them tell this story of D Day and and Normandy and and really what they were achieving throughout the war, I'm just like thinking, man, how in the world did they like like how did they achieve what they achieved? I mean, like for them to do all these things, there's these great stories, and I'm gonna in this episode, I'm gonna share this with you. But I just, I just was like, how in the world? And so, I go and dig in further, and there's just some unbelievable lessons that I found that I pulled, uh, that really exemplify and show what great leaders do to build and foster teams that are capable of extraordinary things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and share really most of that talk with you. We didn't record it, so I'm going to just uh, kind of reshare, redo it here with you, but we'll be a little bit more conversational. And and just to start to get us thinking about how we can influence the collective, and this goes for whether you actually are the, the manager of a team or you are a member of the team. So one week before the invasion on Normandy, the 101st Airborne Division was shipped to a camp. And they were locked down. And and when they were telling the story of what happened, they didn't know. Like when they were, uh, all of these men from the U.S. were in these training uh, camps uh, and and going through all this. And then they were called over to uh, England. And they were just working for basically like nine, 10 months in preparing, doing drills in England. And then finally, a week before D-Day, which they didn't know was D-Day, they were taken to this camp and put on lockdown where they could not go, like nobody was going in and out of that place. Because that is when they learned about everything uh, of the Operation Overlord. And that is the, the D-Day invasion. So they were briefed on the mission. They learned the location of every building and bridge and stronghold of the Germans. Uh, whereas one soldier put it, until they knew it cold. Except for one. Braycore Manor. They missed it. The Germans had successfully camouflaged a battery of four 105-millimeter howitzer cannons. These things are huge. And in the early morning of D-Day, Easy Company flew 90 minutes across the south of England and crossed the Cherbourg Peninsula and jumped into German anti-aircraft fire spewing from the ground. And a lot of soldiers lost their lives. They lost their gear on the way down. And as one soldier described, all he had when he got to the ground was his trench knife, a canteen, and about six candy bars to fight the Germans. So Easy Company, right? Lieutenant Winter uh, rallied his 11 men and was asked to take care of the artillery coming from over this hedge grow, right? And they were motioning toward Braycore Manor. Like they, they had not anticipated this. They're like, Lieutenant Winter, take your company and go figure this thing out. So he took his 11 men and found that howitzers were being camouflaged in trenches around this around this property. So he split his unit into two teams, with one providing cover with hand grenades while the other charged the first position. And in the heat of battle, private win part of uh, easy company, he saw this arm. So they jumped into the trenches and he saw this arm with a hand grenade stick out of this tent. And this is like one of those potato masher grenades. It had been mashed and it was just a matter of dropping this thing before it was going to, before it was going to explode. And Private Wind says, "I, there was no way this guy was going to drop it because we were both right next to each other, but he did. And Private Wynn turns around to, to try and get out of there and Grenade goes off and wreaks havoc on the backside of his body. Lieutenant Winter was, was right there and he witnessed this whole thing. And Lieutenant Winter tells the story that... Private wind didn't holler out in pain or for help, but hollered out that he was sorry. He'd goofed and winter as he's telling the story, he just, he just gets choked up and just says how beautiful this was and how it was a demonstration of how dedicated the men were to each other. So if you guys know Bandit brothers, if you know the story Easy Company went on to overtake the 50 Germans that were at Braikor Manor, 12 soldiers to 50 Germans that had four howitzer cannons that were firing down on Utah Beach. They went on to fight for the liberation of Holland. They would hold the front line against the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge And these were the guys that secured Hitler's eagle's nest. Just unbelievable. And as I started to dig into this story, like I was telling you, what I found out was that these men, the majority of these men, this was their first experience in combat. Two years prior to D-Day, they were civilians. So I'm incredibly curious to know what happened between their last day of civilian life and D-Day. Because that team became capable of doing extraordinary things. So I want to read this quote. I I had a, a colleague of mine at work, uh, Jeremy Flores, shared this quote with me. and to me, I, I think it really paints a, a picture on leadership that I, I just don't think I really realized before. And that is to achieve the extraordinary, you have to be willing to do things that have never been done before. You need to take risks with bold ideas. You can't achieve anything new or extraordinary by doing things the way you have always done them. You have to test unproven strategies. You have to break out of the norms that box you in. Venture beyond the limitations you usually place on yourself and others. Try new things and take chances. Right? So this is like this first part of the quote, not new to probably any of you that are that are listening, especially if you listen to uh our our episode on courage. But what we often don't talk about is that leaders must take this one step further. Not only do they have to be willing to test bold ideas and take calculated calculated risks, but they also have to get others to join them on these adventures in uncertainty. It's one thing to set off alone into the unknown. It's entirely another to get others to follow you into the darkness. Because... That is leadership. That to me is leadership. It is leaning in and showing up and and seeing the potential and people and ideas. I'm I'm uh, pulling you know A. Brown's uh, leadership definition here. but we no longer have businesses that are stable and static for long periods of time. Change, and this evolutionary process is now the norm for business and now is a norm for leadership to be able to lead their teams into the unknown and to get them to follow you into darkness. So the difference between a leader who achieves something extraordinary and those that don't are the ones who create conditions that foster or build three things about their team conviction capability and chemistry so extraordinary teams need you as a leader to foster and fuel and cultivate the conviction capability and chemistry of that team we're going to talk about each okay so first conviction So going back to World War II and and the experience of these paratroopers, you had to, to be a paratrooper in World War II, you had to volunteer. You had to sign up to join this elite team that had much higher risk of injury or death, but you also were going to get paid quite a bit more. Some soldiers read the difficult requirements in Life magazine, as one soldier was describing his experience, and saw it as a challenge and wanted to see if they could do it. Others didn't want to join the infantry. They refused to. They said if, if they were going to join the military, they were going to be part of something elite and do something special. So whatever the motivation or mission You need conviction. You need a team that wants to be there, that wants to be part of the mission. So you and I have a responsibility to not only cultivate that conviction and to hire people that want to be there, but we've got to really lead out with that conviction. Okay, so you might be thinking that, all right, yeah, my team is good you know they're they're happy they're doing their job but i'm going to just push back a little bit and just share some research from this recent state of the global workplace report from gallup 85% of employees are not engaged or actively disengaged at work 85% this is 85% of your team is not engaged or is actively disengaged from the work that you guys need to get done. So the economic impact of this norm is around $7 trillion in lost productivity. Staggering number, but specifically the 18% of the 85%, the group that is actively disengaged uh, in the workplace Versus the 67% categorized as not engaged, you can do something about this, right? The latter group makes up the majority of the workforce. They are the majority of your team, and they are not your worst performers. But they are indifferent to your organization. They're indifferent to your mission, and the work your team is doing. They give you they they give you their time, but they but they're not giving you their best effort. They're not doing their best work. They're not giving you their best ideas. But here's the thing. They are us. Right? They is not this distant relative, this distant person that we can't relate to, that's not part of our team. They likely come to work wanting to make a difference. Can you relate to this? I I think you can. They want to make a difference, but nobody has ever asked them to use their strengths or worked with them to use their strengths to make an impact for your company, really helping them do their best work, right? Getting them focused on those strengths like we've talked about. So is this this surprising to you? Like, are those numbers surprising to you? What was your first reaction to this? I want to know. Like this is a tough pill to swallow if you, if you lead, if you manage a team. So what I want you to do is I want you to do a quick evaluation of someone on your team. Are they wanting to make a difference? So picture somebody, choose somebody on your team, and answer the question, are they wanting to make a difference? If not, they are actively disengaged. They are the 18% who are actively disengaged. If yes, if they do want to make a difference are they committed to the organization and its goals if not they are not engaged and i'm going to guess that there are like it's pretty easy to tell if someone is is committed to the organization and its goals because they use what's called discretionary effort they're the ones at you know they the, they're the ones that are picking up trash in the in the parking lot They're the ones that are, that are staying late hours because nobody asked them to, but because they want to ensure that the presentation that's happening tomorrow, that we just kill it, right? They want to, they want to ensure that, uh, you know, the customer is, is completely satisfied and even that, you know, there's kind of this magical moment for, for the customer. But your team will never do great work if your people are not doing their best work. So here's your first action item. You gotta make work matter. You gotta make it clear to each team member how their strengths will make a difference to the organization and its goals. And I and I, and you can just connect those dots for them. Help them connect those dots. You'll know you've succeeded when they can answer these three questions with a yes. One, do they know their role? Two, do they believe it matters? And three, do they have the opportunity to be proud of their work? That's when you'll know if they believe their work matters. So the second aspect of these great teams is capability. So you have to have the right talent, skills, and experience to achieve the extraordinary. However, you are going to hire and inherit team members who have never done what you are about to ask them to do, and that's okay. Because here's why. The rate of innovation and change in business today is faster than experience or education. Let me say that again. The rate of innovation and change today is faster than experience or education, which means you have to normalize risk-taking as part of your group culture. Give your team the space to try, fail, and learn, then reward them for it. So Spanks founder Sarah Blakely tells this awesome story about how her father did this for her all growing up. She recounts that every night around the dinner table, her dad would ask her what she failed at that day and praise her for it. Sarah's dad totally normalized the process of figuring things out, of stepping into the unknown and learning from it. What a good guy. (laughs) So... We interviewed um, the the team that was working with Alex on the book. They, They did a lot of different interviews. And one of the interviews they did was with Mark McGinnis. He's a former Navy SEAL commander. And he gave this advice. Ensure that the purpose and parameters of the mission are clearly understood. Then trust your team to deliver the actions to get you there. Again we've got to give our team the opportunity to test to try and learn and we've got to be deliberate about that and nobody does this better i mean i, I the it, the whole thing with world war II and using the story of easy company it was just so perfect because at the further I, I dove into it the more the more lessons i learned that reinforced these principles uh that uh, were just so key and that is that Paratroopers, the way they train paratroopers is exactly how you and I need to uh, foster this collective capability of our teams. Let me explain. So paratrooping school uh, is a three-week program. Week one is ground week. The first thing soldiers are taught is about the parachute and harness. They practice jumping out of mock doors Four inches off the ground, teaching them how to make an individual exit out of the plane. They learn how to land properly sliding on this little zip line four feet off the ground. They learn how to load onto an aircraft, what to do while on the aircraft and how to exit the aircraft. And this training isn't in a classroom, but outside in literally what looks like a playground built to roughly resemble the dimensions of a plane. Once they have the basics, they, they progress to 34 feet. The tower is where they get their first real taste of what lies ahead. And this is the key. It's the first time the soldiers are really at a height where they are taught to rely on their training to do this quote unquote, unnatural act of jumping off a tower. So I I was going through some footage, uh, and some videos of these instructors at paratrooping school, and they they use this term uh, unnatural act, and I, I loved it because the second week, right, they get them to uh, understand, they, they strap them into a harness, and they want them to understand what it feels like to float down from 250 feet uh, in a parachute. So they literally put them into this harness, and they have this open parachute um, strapped onto them, and they raise them up in this tower, and they they drop them. And there is uh, an instructor on the ground with a megaphone yelling and coaching and encouraging the soldier on technique. And then the third week is what they call jump week. And as you can imagine, this is where the soldiers actually jump from a plane. They do five jumps that week, the final being at night in the dark. So they are prepared to do what paratroopers most often do in combat. Get inserted behind enemy lines at night. So this paratrooper training is what happens today. It's what prepared Easy Company for the invasion at Normandy years and years and years ago. Um, But before that ever happened, when those soldiers were in Toccoa, Georgia, Standing on the 34-foot tower and relying on their training to, to take that unnatural act, to do that unnatural act, um, that's the only thing they could think about. They weren't nervous about Normandy that day. They were nervous about Georgia. So here is the lesson for us and our action item. You've got to encourage... The extraordinary by creating momentum and progress toward uncertainty. You can do this by understanding that there's four types of goals, and I'm we're not going to do a deep dive into goal setting here and now, but I want to uh, explain this this aspect of goal setting. The way you set goals having clear goals and stretch goals and extraordinary goal. I mean, however you're going to, uh, like, like qualify the goals in terms of difficulty. That is your four foot tower, your 34 foot tower, your 250 foot plus tower. And your, I think it's a 1200 foot jump out of a plane. Like that progress has, everything to do with the goals that you're setting with your team. So you will create momentum toward the extraordinary when your team knows they can handle the low risk goals and objectives that you're setting with them. And when they know that their leader has their back and that they have a team who will sacrifice blood, sweat, and tears to keep them safe. So this totally leads us to to our last topic, and that is chemistry. Trusting and leveraging your team members for help begins well before you're on the ground in Normandy, well before you set this extraordinary goal in front of them. So for those of you, I think that the majority of the listeners here have heard of Simon Sinek. He's another famous TED speaker and has some really interesting insight around leadership. And he has this quote, we call them leaders because they take the risk before anybody else does. We call them leaders because they will choose to sacrifice so that their people may be safe and protected and so their people may gain. And when we do, the natural response is that our people will sacrifice for us. They will give us their blood and sweat and tears to see that their leader's vision comes to life. And when we ask them, why would you do that? Why would you give your blood and sweat and tears for that person? They all say the same thing because they would have done it for me. And he, and that comes from, he's, he's spent some time with the military and really asking over and over again that question of why would you do that? And that's the answer he always gets is because they would have done it for me. So that chemistry is built well before, uh, we, we go after those, those big goals. And one of the members of easy Company his name is named shifty powers, he said this of his team, he said, you know, these people that you are in service with, you know, those people better than you will ever know anybody in your life. And you will know them right down to the final thing that comes when you start your training while that progresses. In other words, as you build the capability of your team to do the extraordinary, they will learn to come together, rely on each other, and serve the needs of those they work with. But here's the thing, is that we did at Workfront this state of work report, and we were doing these different survey questions, and and to change it up, we asked this question um, about Rating your colleagues' work. And we did it like on a five-star scale like you would an Uber driver. And guess what the average was? 3.7. And the most common source of conflict that they cited in this survey with uh, with other departments or teams was conflicting priorities, was 57% lack of communication 56% and lack of understanding of urgency 47%. Let me ask you this question. Did Easy Company would they rate their the 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 man on their right and left? Do you think they would have rated them at a 3.7? Do you think they had conflicting priorities? Do you think they had a lack of communication or a lack of understanding of urgency? I don't think that they were flawless but that just seems laughable when you think about it in the context of war. So if you want a team with chemistry, you have to give up your time or even opportunities to make sure they gain and succeed in their clear and stretch goals. Like these 34 foot towers, these 250 foot towers You've got to ensure that they win, that they succeed in those and that you're there present to to help them succeed. So here's your third and final action item. You need to give for their gain. Win their loyalty to your mission and to each other. And you can do this by reviewing the projects your team members are working on, find out what they need and personally make it happen. Give them your time and enable their win. And that's how you can foster chemistry. So for any of us to lead a team to do extraordinary things or to even be on a team that is going to do extraordinary teams, we have to have the courage to do something different or new. You can't sit and wait idly for the people manager to do it. And... If you're in that privileged like superior uh position of leadership and you are saying, "Well, my people aren't doing it." That's not the right approach. We have to figure out how to be a leader of extraordinary achievements by doing things to become better leaders. And that's certainly what uh, what this podcast is is all about. So, here's here's the the kind of the summary of, of what we've we've hit on you've got to be willing to step into into the darkness just like easy company but if you create the right conditions your team will follow so build conviction make their work matter help them know their role help them believe that it matters and that they have the opportunity to be proud of their work secondly, Build the capability of the team to do the extraordinary by creating momentum from clear to stretch to extraordinary goals. And then finally, foster that chemistry. Give for their gain. Serve those you lead. Give your blood, sweat, and tears to ensure your team members win. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can find more information about the topic and continue the conversation at donerightpodcast.org. The Dunright Done Podcast is hosted by me, Jordan Staples. The show is produced by Workfront. Our team includes Jeremy Tippetts and Mark Hansen. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. See you next time.